Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Thank you, Mike. And thanks for those songs. They're very appropriate for today's learning time. We're looking at First or Second Samuel chapter 6 and 7. We're looking at the Davidic king, uh, covenant. This is the high point of the Old Testament. If this is not Mount Everest, it is certainly K2. This is the fulfillment and the realization for, in many respects of the two, the two major covenants we've already looked at, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. The purpose of man is to rule in a garden, to manage it, right, like a king or a queen, and to rest with God. It's to manage or rule with God and then to rest with God. And all, while uh, much is lost in the curse in the Garden of Eden, the purpose of man uh, remains, and the covenants are now trying to work us back to some expression or some experience of Eden once again, as much as we can get in this lifetime. Uh, we will need a king to come to crush the curse, and, our, and we know what to look for. We know what to hope in. The covenants give us hope. They give us, um, it's blurry, but it, it, they get more progressive as it goes. They get clearer as time goes by, but they give us um, clues. So the Abrahamic covenant, the, co- the covenant he made with Abraham multiple times and with his descendants, was that he would be a father of a dynasty, that that would become a, a nation and that nation would inherit uh, some of the choicest and most strategic land on the entire planet. Now, that covenant with Abraham was unconditional. It was one way. Abraham couldn't get out of it because he didn't make any promises. God made all the promises. And then, again, we're going to see that show itself today with the Davidic covenant, but also the Mosaic covenant, where the covenant was with this nation. Moses was the spokesperson for that, the person that brings it down off that mountain. And that covenant was conditional. And that was that if Israel would stay close, if you could just see God as like a mother hen, you know, if you could just stay close to me, I will provide and protect you through the storms of life. If you run off on your own, you will be on your own. And so just stay close and obey and and stay close to me and let's stay connected with one another and you will be a beacon for the rest of the world. If you look at the story as it progresses, you'll see in Joshua they do just that. As a young nation, they, they, they take the land that was promised to them, to, to Abraham and to Moses, and that's a story of victory, of staying close to God and obeying his commands. They were careful to obey all that he had commanded. And then they are rebels without a cause for about 400 years. It's called the Judges. And during that period, it was as though everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. There was no rules. There, were no, there was no establishment of, of intimacy with God. They were on their own. And then a thousand years after the promise to Abraham, 500 years after the ark had left its docking station at Mount Sinai, a little shepherd boy is delivering cheese. And he hears some big mouth bully mock the God of Abraham. He had to borrow Goliath's sword to chop his head off. And he left the cheese with his brothers, but he went home to Bethlehem with his arms full. He took Goliath's sword and put that over one shoulder and then took the head of Goliath and carried it 80 miles to Jerusalem 
where the Jebusites were ruling that town. You can see it from Bethlehem. You just look up the hill, less than about five miles. You just look always looking up at Jerusalem. David always seeing that big city that belonged to God. And he leaves the head of Goliath there because he had to be home before the streetlights came on. But he would be back. You fast forward the story 30 years or so, you know, about 30 years. <laughs> and David is the king of Jerusalem. First, or 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 is about peace in Israel. David did what he was made to do. He threw a lot more rocks. He took a lot more bad guys to the grave. He is an expression of the Mosaic covenant. He's a poster child. He's on the Wheaties box of what it looks like when you just stay close to God when you're humble and obey him and do what you're made to do. And he was made to win in combat. He was a combat soldier. He was a strategic general. And he brought peace to Israel and made Jerusalem the capital. First, or 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 is about one holy kingdom. When we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth here as it is in heaven, it's 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. It couldn't get any better, well, if God himself walked in the dirt in Jerusalem and went through those gates, that could be better. But other than that, when you have a place on earth that is ruled by God's people, and God rules from there, in the Bible, it's called Zion. In other words, when you have a location, a physical location, where God is the prophet and the priest and the king of those people, and, and he uses that place to rule the whole world, that in the Bible is called Zion. Even to this day, people are Zionists because they hope that that would happen once more. This is Zion in its glory from a quote that I found. Mount Zion became Yahweh's chosen mountain. Zion, therefore, becomes the fulcrum of the entire universe. Zion is the place from which the world was created, as a point from which the primal ray of light has emitted. It is the only mountain to stand above the deluge of mankind. It is also the highest point in the highest land, the center of the center from which the rest of reality takes its bearing. It is the North Star. It is Zion. Second Samuel chapter 6 and 7 is about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is, 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 we have a capital city now, and the Ark is not just a, a trinket, it's not a symbol, it is the presence of God. It is a rally cry to worship. It is the, the, the purpose of the Ark was to show the nation of Israel that God was with them. Emmanuel, God with us, we think it's a Christmas story. It starts with this Ark, that he was with them no matter what. In the wilderness wanderings of the deserts of Sinai, right, God was with them. When they crossed the Jordan River, it was the ark that went first and split the river. God was with them in war, in good times and in bad. It was, a, it was, it was to show the history of God in his creation, in his direction, in his intervention, in his blessings. The ark was God's presence with them. Emmanuel, God with them. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 is also about a joyous celebration. It is, um, the closest we could get would be the ticker tape parades after the Second World War, after VE and VJ days, when the city was filled with celebration because we were finally free. It cost, but we were finally free. 
In this story, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the city of Jerusalem is overflowing with people, over 100,000 in this tiny little town, over 100,000 people, with every type of marching band worship instrument that you can imagine is leading this procession. And right out front is David, not in kingly garb, but in a white linen, because he was a priest today. He could hold that office this day as the priest, and he would bring that ark into Jerusalem Again, a monumental day. And it says that, that David danced before the ark with all of his might. He lost himself, completely self-forgetful, and he danced. Of course he did, and all the people danced because they knew this was the dream of Abraham, that he would have a nation and that they would have a land and they would be at peace. This was the hope of Moses, that people would acknowledge the, the supremacy of God and stay close to him, and he would provide, and he would protect them. This is the peak. This is, this is, this is how 2 Samuel ends. It's up on the screen, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. And, and they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside a very special tent that David had prepared for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings there to the Lord. And when he had finished the sacrifices, God, David blessed the people in the name of Jehovah and, the ar and his armies. The Lord of hosts is what that means, the Lord of the armies. And then he gave every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and cake of raisins. And all the people returned to their home, praising God. The purpose of man is to work in the garden and rest with God. This was it. They worked to establish this nation and this capital, and now they are resting with God. This is it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 begins with David in his ornate and beautiful palace, probably up on his deck, and he's looking down at that ark in its tent. And something stirs within him. There's something in his heart that wants to give back to God, realizing that he is now the king of Israel in this palace, in this capital city. He wants to give back to God. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, And after the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest for all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here am I. Here I am, rather. Living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan says, oh, I like what you're thinking. You should do that. So here's the idea. I'm in a house. I want to build God a house. I'm in a sanctuary. I want to build God a sanctuary. Right? I have a place of honor. I want to build God a place of honor. And that night, the Lord comes to Nathan and says, that's all good and well, but it can't be David. And so he has to go back the very next day and deliver this harsh news because a dream has died, and he has to tell David no. That the lighthouse of God for the hope of all human souls, this place, this tangent point where the finger of God touches the little blue dot we call earth, could not be built by a man of war. It would have to be built by a man of peace. It would have to be Paris, not Achilles. It would have to be Solomon, peace not David the giant slayer. The blood on the hands of David would soil the pure white linens of the holy temple. 
And so David couldn't build the temple. He was told no. But then God just keeps talking because he loves David and his heart for what God loves. When you love the things that God loves, God says, now you get it. We're, we're, you are in me and I'm in you. You abide in me and my words abide in you. And we're just, we're thinking the same thoughts. And so where David said, I have a palace, I want you to have a palace. I have a house, I want you to have a house. God says, no, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you a palace. I'm going to give you a dynasty. When we read this, what we're going into right now is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant to David. I want you to listen for how Abrahamic it is. It is unconditional. David doesn't do anything. He ta- he's going to talk about a garden that he will plant this, this, this city, this nation. He will plant them here, and he, and he will give them a, a descendant like he, like he gave. He will make his name great like he talks about Abraham's name being great. I want you to hear how it's unconditional and how it's Abrahamic. He said, David says, I want to build you a home. And God says, I'm going to build you a home because you wanted to build me a home. (laughs) This sounds like a great marriage, doesn't it? Oh, no, I'm going to love you more. He's going to talk about a place for Israel to call home. And he's going to talk about a dynasty that will live forever, like we sang today. And he will reign forever and ever. There are three promises God makes in the temporary. In, In other words, David, you will live to see these three things. I will make your name great. Very Abrahamic in the vocabulary. I will make, make your name great. I will, I will give you a place or a garden to rule. He's going to use the word plant. I'm going to plant you here. And then finally he said, I'm going to give you peace, rest, Sabbath, Shabbat. That's what he's going to give him. Now listen for that in the first few verses here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's up on the screen. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I I took you from the pastures, from tending the flocks, and appointed you the ruler over the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide for you. Here's the place. That's a great name. And I will provide a place for my people of Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed the leaders over the people of Israel. And I will also give you rest from your enemies. So David will live to see those three things, and then he gives him four promises. This is lengthy, but he gives him four promises that will go on past his life. And like Abraham, he will not see these come to happen, but he will put faith in the promises of God to be true. And and these are eternal, right? That he will be, he have a dynasty, he will have a king that will give birth to kings and kings and kings. That, that the son, he will have a son that will be a peaceful son. He will name him Solomon, Shalom, and he will build that temple. And that um, he will have, God will have a father and son relationship with that son, and that he would never leave. His love would never leave. Unconditional love for the dynasty of Abraham. Now listen for that, those four things, as we read the next section, the eternal promises in the Davidic covenant. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You try to build me a house, I'm building you a house (laughs) forever. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you from your very own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom 
And this is the one who will build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be like his father. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod yielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Verse 12, dynasty of kings. You will have a house and a throne. Verse 13, the temple will be built by one of your offspring, one of your seeds, Literal there is like one offspring, one of your seed. This is, Ab- this is just like Abraham's promise. One of your descendants, one of those descendants will live forever. Where They will rule forever. He'll have a father-son relationship, he says, with him, and I will discipline him like a father, right? And then finally, he says, your king, this king will reign forever and ever, just like we sang. It's an unconditional promise. Now, If you can imagine David trying to give his heart out to God and say, I want to build you a temple. I want to build something so fabulous and marvelous. People will travel from all over the world to see this. And God says no to him, but then responds with this eternal promise that you have put yourself in the line of Abraham's promise, David. Now it's becoming clearer what a king would look like and from what family tree it would come from, from the the tribe of Judah from the king of, Abraham, uh, of David, from Solomon's family. This is what it looks like. David's response is magnificent. He goes to the temple, he goes out there where the tent is and just sits down and weeps with joy in worship and says this. This is one of the verses that we read. And then the king went down and he sat down before the Lord and he said, who, who am I, O sovereign God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this the usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? That's how he's constantly appealing. Three times in these few verses, seven times in his final prayer, he would say, you are in charge of the universe. You are sovereign over all creation. And this is what you do with your power? You treat a shepherd boy and turn him into a king and then give him eternal promises? This is the Abrahamic or the the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant to David. This is the promise of a shepherd, a little shepherd boy who was born in the little town of Bethlehem, who became a giant killer and then a kingmaker. It was his humility that gave him his power. He was humble before God. He trusted God in the fearful experiences in his life. He trusted God to love well. He was a poet and a soldier. It is the fulfillment. Again, if this isn't the top, it is K2. It is is Abrahamic's promise. It is Abrahamic's uh, hopes that there would be, right, a land and a nation and a seed that would go on forever. It is the dream of Moses that the people would finally stay close and live their lives according to the will of God. This is the covenant of David. And that's why 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7, the bringing in of the ark and the Davidic covenant is the high point of the Old Testament. This is the top. Because in the spring, when kings go on maneuvers, 
to make things all, make sure that all things are safe for their people, a proud king stayed home. And while all the men were gone, he was looking out over that deck and looked right past that ark and saw something that wasn't his, and he took it because he could. Who's the bully now? And then he kills an innocent man to hide his adultery with Bathsheba. It is all lost. The hope of Camelot is gone. This is the one we were hoping for and betting on. We can't fix this. The hope is not in men. We do this every time. We never fail to fail. And so our hope has to be in a man from somewhere else, a different kind, begotten, not made. We have to thank God that this promise to Abraham and now to David is unconditional because we can't live in the world of conditional covenants with God. We will always break our promise. It's a sad story because of all the hope that Israel must have placed. They still look back on these 40 years and say, you remember the days. I remember the day. It was the spring when kings go out to war. You know, when we're studying covenants, it's taken us five weeks to fully get to a point where we can appreciate this word because I know a lot of people would love to just say, is there another word? There's got to be. Do you, have, do you not have a thesaurus? I mean, you know, why are we using such an archaic term, this covenant? Is there something that we have that's like it? And the, and the answer is no. There's nothing quite like this word because the word covenant is, is this sacred, um, this is interesting, sacred marriage between law and love. The word covenant is used in the Bible, and I mean, it's such an ancient word, but it's still used to this day because, because nothing can hold the weight of that delicate balance between love and law. We have expressions of love, right, where we, we want to love and give ourselves to one another, but if you look at the language of covenants, there's these first-person possessive pronouns that are riddled throughout the storyline. I mean, just in this one, and David says, the, the Possessive pronouns are from God. He says, I mean, I will be his father and he will be my son. My son, my little Billy, my little Sally. Nobody gets to say that but a parent, somebody that owns, tender-hearted, committed love. And then there's language of, of law too, right, where he says, um, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And then he just keeps going. I will, I will, I will, I will. There, there is nothing more powerful than love and law because you can't have the depth of love without the law, and you can't have just with the law. You can't have any love. You don't, it doesn't come. 
And so the law says, I am voluntarily saying that I'm giving up certain things and rights so that I could love you better and so that you can be safe to love me back. In our culture today, we don't want, we don't, we don't want to put the law in our love because it's, uh, right, it's encumbering. And again, it, it might be just a little bit ancient. And so we make, we make mild commitments. And we essentially in those commitments are saying, I will love you for so long as. And there's, it, mostly it's self-centered. It is so long as I get something back. If we're even or I, I, love, I have an edge, that's fine. But one argument, you know, of Star Wars or Star Trek, which one's better? I'm done here. And, and, and people check out because there, there's, no, there, there's love. But there's no law to it. And it's self-centered, generally speaking. But when two parties come together, it, when, they, when they say the vows, right? This is much like marriage. When they say their vows, they're saying, I'm obliged to God and these very many witnesses that are standing before me. That regardless of how this person acts, I will give all of me to them. And the other person says, regardless of how this person acts, I will give all of me to them. So help me God. And by this, the authority given to me in the state of Texas, and the witnesses, and God Almighty above, I now pronounce you man and wife. Because, see, what you're doing, you're saying, I am freely and legally giving up beforehand my freedom to you. I am giving up my insecurities to you. I am making it safe for you to love me recklessly. And you can't do that without a binding law, contractual agreement, no words are appropriate, covenant. You must have a covenant that marries law and love. We see that in this. We see that in marriage. But this passage is about adoption. The language in this Davidic covenant is about taking and owning because, he, because God, is, God is the adopter. He does all the work. I will, I will, I will. He, he does all the traveling to come here. He does all the paying of all the bills. I laugh because some of you, so many of you have adopted. It's like, how much does it cost? Twice what you think. And we bring to him soiled souls. He does all the work, all the travel, all the expense. We bring him soiled souls. He uses, he says this, he says, I will be his father and he will be my son and I will spank him. What would you do to me if I spanked your child? Wouldn't go well. Maybe make it in the newspaper, right? <laughs> right? Because... No one spanks your child but mom and dad. And so when God says, look, look, Solomon, he will, I, he will be my son and I will be his father. And I want to show you how much I love him. I will discipline him. Oh, wow. I don't discipline. Th I punish people that aren't mine, but I discipline those that belong to me. And then, and then what, what does he say? He says, I will never remove my love for him like I did with with Saul, the one that was your predecessor. I will never leave him. There are two places where families are born. One in the LDR, right, labor and delivery rooms, in hospital rooms, and the other one 
in the courthouse. Have you, have you seen an adoption courtroom proceeding? And most of the time in this country, it is a fabulous event. Sometimes the little child gets up if he's old enough and gets to sit in the judge's chair and hammer that gavel down, and it says, I belong to you, and you belong to me. And what's happening there? It's the parent. I mean, the parents are just like, he's ours. He is ours. And we can love him. We've been leaning into this, and we, we always had one hand back just in case, and now we can just fall into this, right? If you've, if you've adopted children from other countries, maybe you've experienced this type of courtroom procedure, you know, where all the papers are signed, and there's a cab running outside. Bank robbers could learn from your efficiency where you grab a child and all the paperwork, and you are running to jump into a moving car. I am getting out of here because he's mine now. She belongs to me. I had a dear friend that, because of some paperwork in this country, oddly enough, uh, his adopted girl that he had for two weeks, they called him up and they said, um, the, the father wouldn't sign the paperwork to spite the mother. Not, nothing on you, but despite the mother. And we're not sure if this is going to actually play out. And so we, we're just being very tentative here right now. And he hung up the phone and we talked. He, we called and prayed. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, they'll never find me. Because, because up until the legal part of it, they were withholding something. And sometimes you don't even know you are until, right, until the notary seals it. He had his paperwork. He'd crossed that line. He'd given his heart to them, to this little girl, and no one was ever going to take her from him. It was one way. It was love. It was a covenant it was obligatory by law. There was an overseeing authority that says, you will love them. We say in our culture today that I am spiritual but not religious. I am a spiritual person, but I don't want to be encumbered by a church or a synagogue or a set of people that are going to tell me how to live. That's, that's, that's free love. That's, that's free spirit. That's not the Bible. Because the Bible is covenant love. The love that God talks about in the Bible is to Abraham and to David, right, to Adam. And it's legal and it's loving. And it says, these are the rules. And, I, and God says, I swear to myself that I'll do this. And there are boundaries and there are rules and there are expectations. It's safer this way. It's more joyful this way. It is more reckless this way. It is the only way you can live with God. It's the only way God can live with us if he swears by his own name. So when we look at the covenants, I want us to, I want us, I just, again, it's taken us five weeks to get to this point to understand this fully because now we see this in, in the context of David's covenant and his Solomon's adoption. How do you live a better marriage how do you become a better parent? How do you be a better boss or employee? You do it by clinging to this covenant promise of God. This is a salvation-type promise. God has adopted us, it says in the New Testament. 
He has done all the work. He has traveled all the great journeys. He has spent all the expense money. We bring him our soiled souls. We have that confidence to be able to eat the evil against us and forgive our mate again or to have the courage to turn them in or take them somewhere that they can get help or have the courage to lean into being a parent more loving and more truthful. Does this apply to our lives? It absolutely applies to our lives because it gives us confidence of covenant legal love from God where he is unconditionally choosing to take us so that we can now, with the armor of that, we are bulletproof in our interactions with our fellow man. If you think your relationship with God is conditional, then you will live with caution. If you understand that it is unconditional, unrelenting from God to you, then you can live leaning in and take these punches, endure hardship, suffer evil, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. He didn't ask you to do something difficult. He asked you to do something impossible, and he gave you his spirit to do that because he covenanted with us. That's what covenant is. Live that way. Live that way. Let's close. And I, I want to pray with, with David's prayer. This is what he says after he, after he, just, he, he, he just sits down by that tent, right? He sits down by that tent. And he just says, why, why do you care about me and my family? And he says, what? here's his prayer. Let's just pray this to him. What more can David say to you? What more can Matt, what more can any of us say to you? You know your servant, O sovereign God. For the sake of your word and according to your will, I have done this great thing and made it known to your, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears, and now, Lord God, Keep forever the promises that you made concerning your promises to us through Jesus Christ. Do as you promised so that your name would be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, reigns in the house of my soul and the house of your servant, and we will see you forever. Lord Jesus Come. And all God's people said, Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.